Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, hello. And we have a very special guest, the editor of The Real Bits and the author and world expert, actually, on <laughs> The Green Arrow, and author of Moving Target, The History and Evolution of Green Arrow, Richard Gray. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Special guest. I could get used to that. Yeah, welcome back, Richard, actually, because we've had you before, but now you're more famous, so welcome back. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> no, pleasure to be back. Huh? Always good to have you on the show. It absolutely is. We have a full house. We will be talking Richard's book shortly. But first, we're talking about the film of the week in cinemas, which opens tomorrow, which is Suburbicon. It is written by the Coen brothers. It is directed by George Clooney. And also stars- written by George yes, Clooney. Yes. Also, a, it's an interesting backstory on this film. It's a Coen brothers script from 1986 that they wrote just after Blood Simple. And it has a kind of similar plot to Blood Simple in some ways. Mm. And it's been... Well- Worse, <laughs> right? Yeah, for sure. It's been rewritten by Clooney and his regular writing partner Grant Heslov, and I, I imagine updated to fit the times based on the way this film plays out. What? Yeah, what did you think, Glenn? Yeah, it's quite an interesting one. It stars a few interesting actors: Matt Damon, Julianne Moore as twins. I know the Coen Brothers have done this innovation a few times, and Oscar Isaac in my favorite role in the film. It's set in the idyllic 50s, 60s. Really, not so sure, but there is an underbelly. There is a tragic event, as there is in many, many Coen Brothers Coen Brothers films, and it's very much. More more of the style of Fargo than some of his other ones. Um, I have had very mixed feelings of this one. Panel, how do we feel about Suburbicon? Yeah, mixed feelings sums it up. Mm. Um, what I, What's interesting about this film, I, I think it does have a genuinely interesting plot that had a lot of potential, which is that it's a typical Coen Brothers story of corruption, but the innocent figure that's viewing it is a child. And the power dynamic between a child and corrupt, evil parents who are manipulating him is... Really interesting, but I think the movie is a little bit scattered. We'll get into that in a bit, um, because I could rant about that all day. So it doesn't capitalize on that material as well as it could have. Exactly. I I think, in a way, the movie did have the consciousness of a child in the way it's scattered and trying to focus on things. It's trying to present so many ideas without doing any of them. Take that, George Clooney, you child. Exactly. It is childish. It's It's a childish movie, actually, which has a center... Child as a protagonist, which is just you know how it is, but in a way, I think it's also a very Glenn like movie. I thought it was uh-huh. set in the 50s, <laughs> the rivalry and 50s. continues on, <laughs> it's you know, set in the Fight 50s. Club. So, you think Glenn and you think 50s, 60s, I, I know, you but, know, but, a striped a suit and like very neat haircut. You should see my hair, it's nothing, it's, it's like it's a very okay. First of all, it's a very self-professed persona. I'm not making it up. It's you who like to actually put that on. So I'm just going by the flow, by what you would want to be seen as. Oh, I don't know if I want to be seen at still. This isn't my favorite Coen Brothers movie. I like okay. Hell Caesar. I like to brother out now. But if you're going to compare me to one, dude, Fargo, you know, one of the classics. I mean, I know it's Fargo, definitely, you do but this wood movie chipper. is... You okay. do own a wood chipper. I mean, <laughs> all right. Fargo, definitely, but this movie is far gone. Yeah, so. yeah. All right. Oh, how long have you been working on that one for? Okay. <laughs> all of two seconds. My problem with this movie... Oh, look, I have a lot of problems, but... Okay, two major ones. The first is that this movie doesn't have enough of its own identity. It feels mm. way too indebted to the Coen brothers. And the obvious response to that is, well, duh, it's a Coen brothers script. But it goes further than that in the way that George Clooney's direction has clearly tried to ape the Coen brothers at every turn. The The score is by Alexandre Desplat, 
but it's really evoking the kind of cartoonishness of um, some of Carter Burwell's scores for Coen Brothers comedies, but in a way that feels kind of tone deaf. The Coen Brothers would nail this material because they created this this style of film, and Clooney doesn't really feel um, confident here. Um, It goes into, as you say, the device of having the same actor playing twins borrowed from the Coen brothers, um, the casting choices, putting Oscar Isaac. Um, you know, the, I'm not sure if they've actually been in Coen brothers movies. I haven't done the research enough to say that definitively. Julianne Moore has, exactly. But um, I was going to say the character actors who play the two Coen like mob figures in this and the way they're shot, the, the, low, the wide angle, low angle close ups of them that make their faces look really grotesque and distorted are so, so clearly trying to ape what the Coen brothers would have done with this visually mm. back in like 1995. Mm. It's a movie that feels really dated. But it's 2017, so this yeah. movie just feels like shit. Yeah, you, oh. oh, can't say wow. that on radio. No. Um, well, uh, well, if I can just chip in here, I'm, I'm waiting to hear something that I disagree with. I'm completely conscious of the fact that this is Film Fight Club. Right. <laughs> and, and so this is where I'm waiting for, for, for Glenn's 50s uh, uh, to, to, to kick into gear so we can we can actually argue about something. That's why we just fight each other. You well, know, that's yeah. what we do. All right, all right well, I'll defend this film. There's one thing I really loved about it, and that was Oscar Isaac, and he was absolutely incredible. Yeah, his, yeah the movie could have been yeah. about his character, as we discussed after the screening. Oh, I, I totally watched, watched the spin-off. Yeah, Glenn, Glenn was right. I 100%. I'd watch that spin-off. But what really yeah. got me about this film, and I enjoyed some aspects of it, but the fact was, in every Coen Brothers film, there's some underlying social tension, some giant social movement or change that is happening, and that was very present here, literally next door, but it did not integrate into the film. As yeah, well as yeah. Any I, film. I had a major problem with this, because this movie delves into imagery of white mobs, you know, yelling at black people, racial mm. harassment, w- waving the Confederate flag. Which uh, is where your 200, 2017 comes into it. Yeah, right I, I exactly. Yeah. I, I really so wonder if yeah. that was added by Clooney and Heslov in the, in the recent yeah. rewrite or if that was part of the initial draft. But the problem is that those images have power, right? I feel like if you're going to put that yeah. in the, your film, you have to treat it really seriously. But all that it amounts to in this movie is a subplot that um, it's less than a subplot because mm. it... All it's really used to do is to create a major event later in the movie that explain you know that explains why police don't intervene in yeah. the climax of this film. Yeah, and, and look, I I've agreed with everything you've said completely, and and I absolutely think you you bang on the money with this film. But the one thing you said at the top was that it is glimpsed through the eyes of a child, and so maybe I don't know, giving this film the benefit of the doubt. This is, you know, a child's point of view trying to comprehend this complex sort of network of, you know, this is how race relations work. This is how parental relationships are kind of... That's interesting. That's interesting. I agree, but also in doing that, it treats the audience like a child, which I I felt a bit... No, I agree with you. I agree with you, but... I'm, I'm trying to be kind. No, I, I think what yeah. Richard has said is where the film had potential to be really good. If there, yeah. the, the racial element could have justified its inclusion if there'd been more of a direct parallel to going, going on about yeah. this is the injustice of the world, which is, I think, what they were trying to do, but it's kind of thematically confused and it doesn't, you know, it feels like that stuff is just a like excess fat hanging off the movie, except it's, you, you know, something that serious and images that have that much power to traumatize people you know, shouldn't be used window as like the excess yeah. as window dressing. Yeah. 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 Actually on a broader thematic level, it's interesting to know there have been so many political movies as such to use the term, because twenty seventeen is the year of political movies. And yet how many movies have actually done the political subplot or the political theme justice? Well, there's many. one we'll be talking about next week, Detroit. Which 
does, interestingly. But I think one a great article I read about this film, Suburbicons, made the point that any film that is, has to be made is greenlit and then produ- re- done two years later. So by the time it's yeah. out, it's already kind of a little bit past Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of uh, actually does that quite well. We will discuss that next week. But this, I think, was very yeah. much off the mark. I agree. And mm. I think there's there's bigger problems with this movie. Like, as I was saying earlier, the storyline's actually pretty good and has qu- quite a lot of potential to be really yeah. interesting. But... You know, it does feel dated in that we've seen these kinds of Cohen set- comedy setups before. So whenever there's a joke being set up, you can see it a mile away. Um, so it, things like a really funny turn with Oscar Isaac's character is so, you know, it's been done yeah, the so little, much. Yeah, the little vignettes. I mean, the bit that's in every piece of promotional material is him on the bicycle trying to run mm. away from this fire. And that's hilarious. And it works in the trailer. And if there are a few more of those and it wasn't at the centerpiece of yeah, everything yeah. you've already seen about the film, you probably could enjoy this a little bit more. So basically, Clooney should stick to acting rather than directing. Well, maybe. Look, there was um, there's funny stuff potentially in it, but it always misses the mark. But one thing that I thought was just terrible in this movie was the introduction, which goes over this welcome Mm -hmm. to this pretty little fifties town, and it's so so played out now. It's like we've seen Pleasantville, you know, we've seen Blue Velvet, we've seen Edward Scissorhands. It's just rehashing that fifties nostalgia parody thing that is. Way, way, way past its use by date in 2017. Like, we know the 50s were bad. Tell us something right. about why they were instead of just, yeah, people were racist and, and white and everything was boring. All right, whatever. Until, until you mentioned that, it had completely left my mind that that was the top of the film. Yeah. And it, was, and, it, and it does set the tone for something that doesn't actually pay off later. Thank God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. that would have been, I, I was dreading what kind of movie we'd be about to watch. But exactly. If you're going to go there. Can you imagine that film? Can you imagine oh, yeah, the events of that film set? purely in that sort of fantasy version of the 50s. I think that could have been You're right, if it had stuck to this plot. Stepford Wives (laughs) 2.0. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that is is Suburbicon. Very mixed feelings in that one. Uh, But it will be in cinemas tomorrow. We'll be back talking about The Green Arrow with Richard. Stay tuned. That was the theme from the Green Arrow. Wow, what a theme! It's Arrow, 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 Arrow. I always say Arrow, and I immediately sound like you know Scooby Doo's just asked a question. Arrow. Arrow? My Uh, name is Oliver Queen. Yeah, I know. I was waiting for the um, for the whole. My name is Oliver Queen. I spent five years on a on an island. I was waiting for that to come in. It's like I can't. This Pavlovian response I have I now. What, what happens now? There's this other audio that's just dropped in. But we will get to the island. We <laughs> we'll will, get to the island. We'll get to that because we are talking about The Green Arrow. And Richard, wow, you've done an amazing job. This book, I've I've just read it. It is really great. You've put so much effort and research into it. Um, dude, good on you. As you said earlier, Thanks. Richard is a world expert on The Green Arrow. And the first question I want to ask you on a very broad level, because it is the question you pose in the opening line of the book. <laughs> and there are many answers because he is a journalist. And as I learned, a florist and all these other many sorts of things who is green arrow 
Uh, it's a good question. You should buy the book. And uh, <laughs> oh, uh, already plugging plugging material in the first <laughs> bit. No, look, Green, Green Arrow is one of those characters who, for a long time, and, and as you pointed out, he's got he's got a TV show now, um, one of uh, four or five, and he really kicked off the um, on the CW network in uh, the US. He really kicked off the the new um, uh, sort of wave of uh, superhero television shows. But Green Arrow has been one of those characters who's been around since the 1940s, and maybe he hasn't had as much love as you know superman and batman and wonder woman and contemporaries like that but he's always been there for seven and when i started writing this book he was uh about 74 years old and i intended this to come out in the 75th anniversary which was last year but publishing patterns being what they were it didn't happen until this year um but it's okay i don't think anybody actually realized that it was the 75th anniversary no, and except that, you so it still works <laughs> you know it's part it's part of the it's part of the thing you know this is a character who has who has literally been in continuous print for 75 years and it's a huge part clearly because he's got a tv show a huge part of the the dc universe but and he's been everywhere and and no one had done this before and i figured someone was going to do it so it may as well be me Absolutely. Now, there's. you've said to me that Green Arrow is your favorite. There's mm-hmm. several people in the book who say that Green Arrow is their favorite. You obviously have a very clear dedication to the character. Before we get into the details of the book, how did you get, start this fascination with the Green Arrow? Well, I mean, this will date me immediately. I started reading comics back in the 90s when I was uh, in my mid-teens, I guess, early teens, really. Still and don't look a day older. I mean, look at you. I know, I know. Fantastic. I, I don't look a day over 60, right? <laughs> and um but it's and but like Ollie Queen I've got a beard. Um he uh it was just a character it was, it was, it was I sort of started reading comics during that era, era when they were killing off uh superheroes left right and center and Superman just died that was huge um and in fact I think I bought that issue at about three shops down from where we're recording this now. There oh, was wow. a comic book store that's not there anymore in Sydney. Um you know Batman had his bat broken bat back broken by Bane the Green Lantern was you know killed off and replaced with someone new. And yet still somehow I retained a sort of trace memory of this character all the way up until when Kevin Smith uh, reintroduced the original Oliver Queen in the early 2000s. And part of his run was looking back at the history of the character. And I think that was the seed. That's the sort of secret origin of this book. It was me then from that point going back and finding out as much as I could about this character. And uh, I guess, you know, you could say that the research for this book took anywhere between three years and 15 years that I've been reading. What do you think the Green Arrow actually stands for? Because people obviously have uh, specific ideas of what Superman yeah. stands for, Batman stands for, Wonder Woman stands for. What Green Arrow, I mean, he's a bit of a... You know, what does he actually stand for? Well, look, for, for a large part of the career, and, and there are a number of different versions of Green Arrow that have been around, but I think the, the thing that's certainly been true of him, he was very much a, uh, a what um, a very famous writer in comic book circles, Denny O'Neill, called a, a blank slate tabula rasa right up until the the 50s and 60s that's when, latin by the way for that's latin <laughs> listeners i come in i keep it classy I just class the place <laughs> up a little bit you know um i write a book and i throw some class in there as well no um you know and and he he was very much a blank slate until the late 60s when they made him um the political conscience the political voice of uh the dc universe and he was the angry left voice who would literally stick it to the gods and say you know when you when you talk about the gods you talk about in terms of superman green lantern wonder woman people who had powers beyond mortal man and he was there going well the little people have problems too and we should probably look after them and there's this famous run that they did where he and green lantern just took off across america and and tried to solve 
the world's problems. And they tackled everything from race relations to poverty to, um, you know, uh, uh, class warfare and drugs. It's a very famous issue where he finds out that his ward, Speedy, um, is a junkie. It's that, that's the, the language of the cover. And his name is Speedy. I mean, you know, he, he <laughs> oh, <dear>. probably... <laughs> <laughs> you probably indicated early on, but you know, and so to me, that's Green Arrow. That's been the the voice of Green Arrow for so long. He is the conscience of the Justice League. Now it's interesting you've said that because in the '60s, as I've read, he was mm. the left wing conscience. But then when you got into the '80s and the '90s with um, Alan Moore, and it was Chuck Dixon. Yes, it was quite an interesting character. You had, you had quite a few choice comments in your interview, which I read <laughs> in the book. Um, the character changed quite rapidly, and how do you feel he's evolved in the sense over so many decades? Well, there's two things there. Um, certainly, Mike Grell, who wrote the character in the '80s, and he's he's the character, he's the version of the character that gets most used these days. Certainly, the version of the character they use in the TV show is based on Mike Grell's. This is very dark, post Frank Miller, Dark Knight Returns, post Watchmen version of Green Arrow who is just this really, you know, it, they called him the urban hunter because he's in Seattle now. He's in a real city. He's wearing, you know, he's waterproof. He's got the hood. This is when the hood comes in, yep. uh-huh. uh, which is very much part of the TV show. And he's, you know, he's taking no prisoners. He, he is, you know, this dark, he's now in his 40s. He's, you know, lived a lot and he and he's not the angry voice. He's still angry, but he's not you know, the young guy that he once was anymore. So that becomes part. And, and he starts leaning a lot more, he starts leaning right. Um, not completely, you know, conservative the way that, you know, a character like, say, the Punisher, who could have came in around the mm-hmm. same era. Frank Miller's it, Batman. Frank Miller's Batman. You know, he's not he's not doing that. Like, we all know the Punisher shoots, you know, shoots first and asks questions later. We know Frank Miller's Batman is, um, you know, about as right as they come. You know, yeah. it's yeah. very much... Disciplinarian, um, you know, that authority. Cri- that crypto-fascist sort of yeah. character that, that Frank Miller created. Uh, Green Arrow's not quite there. And then Chuck Dixon, who you mentioned, is notoriously uh, right-wing in his politics. Mm-hmm. And he does like to say that he keeps his politics and his uh, comic books as separate as possible. Which is impossible. Which is impossible. But uh, at the same time, his version of Green Arrow was actually a completely different Green Arrow. It was the sort of successor version. It was a guy named Connor Hawke, who is uh, the son of Green Arrow, basically, when it was like hot to do the son of characters during the 90s. You know? Yes. It's telling that uh, the sort of uber-left social politics version of Green Arrow kind of didn't have the panache, and you needed that kind of right-wing disciplinary, you know, that kind of version to kind of actually get some gravitas in. Be like, you know, yeah, it's funny, make it sexy again because the, the left-wing character almost feels like oh, too vanilla. It, it's it's funny because <laughs> they brought him in when, like, in the late '60s, early '70s, when that pol- when that politics was really hot at the time, and you know that was they thought this would appeal to hot college kids. <laughs> and well, the, yeah, of course, left wing politics appealing to hot college kids. Yeah, <laughs> and the, <laughs> we are we are UCS dude. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, though, it didn't. It, it was really critically acclaimed. Like, and this is one of the first comic books to get released in those like um, those paperbacks that you. I'm making. I'm making the thing like radio. I'm, I'm making the, the the shape like radio <laughs> yeah, people yeah. can see this. But you know those those cheap paperbacks that you got in airport spinner racks yep. and stuff like that. It was one of the first comic books to, for that to happen. It was really like critically damn acclaimed. all those cultural marxist buying green arrow gosh (laughs) so it was out there and people were reading a bit like it wasn't you know being read you know widely and the series got cancelled um the funny (laughs) thing is that version of the character has remained the quintessential version of the character for a lot of people in fact when they've rebooted the character recently that's what they've come back to it's ironic because 
people that's what people say about left wing politics. It's critically acclaimed, but doesn't work because it's not popular. So, <laughs> well. So what you're saying is the history of, of, of Green Arrow is the history of left wing politics. Pretty much. I, I reckon I could sell this to UTS. <laughs> oh, I, I think you could. Well, you yeah. are a librarian, so you are. The that's true. That the, is true. You left. Politics and the Green Lantern could be a course. You could you could teach it. I think there is a book called Green Lantern and Philosophy. So there's oh, two yeah, textbooks right there. I, 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 I recently bought the Blackwell Pop Culture Philosophy series, and they had the Wonder Woman and Philosophy. Yes. As the latest edition, which was fantastic. I just yeah, that just came out. Yeah. I know, and oh god, blew they me away really in different directions. They're a really great series. That actually. Yeah. Now, there's a number of different versions of the character you go through, not just yes. political. What I found really interesting was your commentary on how Green Arrow became the everyman, as many superheroes do. Yeah. And the college kid, there was one bit about how he had to become a vegetarian in order to <laughs> stay in college yes. or to afford college. So, so we could afford, yeah. Yeah. So it was he's, cheaper. <laughs> he, he, so he's just like us. I, I want to... Uh, and trust me, as someone who's been vegetarian for 18 years, it's not cheaper. Okay, you heard it here first. Well, thank God he didn't become vegan. So. Yeah, well. Always a plus point. So, what is this version of the character? And at the same time, all Batman, some of my favorite superheroes, we know them as everyday jocks. Spider-Man 2, obviously it's, it is Marvel. Mm. Batman is, is an everyday jock. He's a well, billionaire. Well, okay, not Batman. But they're happy versions. So, <laughs> what, is, what is your special power? He's rich. He's rich. So, what... Is the appeal behind Green Arrow, this billionaire, suddenly becoming the everyday dude? Why did this happen? I reckon it's because he was still flying under the radar. Like, this is a character who didn't have his own book, despite the fact that he was created in 1941 and pretty much in continuous print. He didn't have his own book, like his own like headline title, until the 80s. So they just had the freedom to do uh, whatever they wanted with him uh, in the background of these characters. So he uh-huh. was he a was a target. He was exactly a moving target. I see. I see. Oh, you've makes read, sense. You've read the cover of the book. <laughs> I, I, I uh, do say it's got some particularly great cover art. It's pretty spectacular. Uh, I want to go shout out for the cover art. The cover art is done by a guy named Louis Joyce, who is um, uh, sort of almost sort of Wollongong-based artist. Uh, so just. Uh, not quite Wollongong, but he, uh, I've known him for a number of years, and he was actually one of the first people I thought of when I wanted to get some cover art happening. And look, he's just, I hope people judge this. No, book no, by actually, his cover, it, it, it's know. fantastic. Uh, shout yeah. out to Louis. Fantastic work. You know, if I ever do get published, you know, I'm reaching out to you. There you go. You got, you got, Already you got, got another, another customer. Job, another commission there, Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. One other really interesting thing you interrogate in the book is how some of the female characters are written and how some of them evolved over many years. Yeah. And there was a really interesting comment by one of the interviewees where he said, some comic book writers find it difficult to, and correct me if I'm wrong, write uh, male and female characters who aren't married or haven't been yes. sketched. I think that was uh, Mike Grell said that, yeah. Yes. And I found that really interesting because he was obviously his relationship with Dinah changes over the course of mm. many years. His relationship with the, the main character in the show changes over many years too. And I'm wondering how you felt this has been maybe better or different, maybe changed in the later issues of Green Arrow or how you see this reflected in comic books generally? It, it, it's really interesting because I think there, there is that temptation to, to marry. There's the moonlighting syndrome, right? So like as soon as you, you pair off a character, you kind of take something away from them necessarily. And that's where Black, uh, Green Arrow and Black Canary kind of stand out, that they were a couple, warts and all. They fought, they made, you know, they fought, they fell out, they made up, they made love over the course of, you know, 40, 50 years. And they're still doing it. And I think that makes them quite distinct. Unlike Lois Lane and, and Clark Kent, you know they're going to be together. It's a little bit more volatile with these guys. It's a real relationship, I think. It definitely yeah. is in the show. And speaking of the show, many pep readers, myself included, will know Green Arrow first and foremost through the show. 
And this is only one iteration of the character. I learned through the book that the the hook of the show, the island that he has founded in the very first episode, is only introduced 20 years into his run, much, much later. Pretty much, yeah. So how did you feel the show adapted what a character you've watched and seen grow over literally decades and decades? It's really weird. When when the show first came out, I guess six years ago, because we're just into season six now, um, I, I didn't know quite what to believe. I could see the influences there, but this is a character who was killing people in the first season. Oh, that's not my Ollie. Um, you Dude, know, come on. You know, <laughs> you know, and so I, I, I didn't, you know, you know, you talk about, um, and it's very much influenced by, at the time, it was very much influenced by the Christopher Nolan um, Dark Knight films. You could see that influence there. Mm-hmm. Most of the villains, most of, some, even some of the storylines were taken straight out of Batman books. So it was a really interesting move. And, and cynically, some people say it was because they couldn't quite do Batman. They weren't allowed to do Batman on television. So we got Green Arrow in doing Batman stories on television. The show's evolved a lot more since then, and it's taken on its own identity uh, because I don't know. I don't think they know quite what they're doing with Batman on the big screen now. So they've no. We're all a little you know, concerned. Yeah. What, yeah. What Sad flag. I'm not. I'm not too concerned. Do we need more Batman? I, th- I reckon he's played out for now. Yeah. I reckon give Batman a, another ten year retirement like he had after mm. Batman and Robin. Right. That guy's uh, yeah. overexposed. I want. I want the animated series to come back because the oh, Dark Knight can fond, return. Oh yeah. wait, sorry. memories. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. The the. Batman the Animated Series oh, was fantastic. Man. You yeah. know, I just... That's my first sort of adult kind of cartoon memories, actually. Yeah, for me too. I mean, that kind of era, those 90s, the the Batman animated series, there was a Spider-Man animated series, X-Men. And X-Men. Mm-hmm. I'm now going to have that theme stuck in my head for the rest <laughs> of the day. Again, it's Pavlovian. We have our jukebox right here for us. We should just form an acapella group and go on the road. No, 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 no. We've already done our film karaoke club. We do enough acapella on the show as is. Pitch Perfect 4, I'm, I'm asking right now, Universal. Yeah, I reckon we can do the, shit, you, you we know. can flip the all-female reboot thing and do an all-male reboot of Pitch Perfect, <laughs> where, which is about four film nerds. I think that'd just be the status quo, actually. I think that's not a re- that's sort of flip. Right. They just have default four male guys anyway. Struggling <laughs> struggling to get their voices out there on Sydney-wide radio. Yep. Acapellering yeah. every week after they've sold the show to the station as a film talk program. Yeah, <laughs> struggle is why real. Did, why did you say this live? They'll they'll they'll, they'll know now. Yeah, <laughs> second act We've conflict. Films. We mentioned films. Yeah, oh, second act conflict. Yeah. Whether whether li- the station bosses listen to an episode and like, what the hell? Yeah. This isn't <laughs> what we were told. We, we just yep. sang uh, the film Fight Club theme last time. And we yeah, did, yeah, the two true. and a half men thing. So that's true. Yeah. Now we have the new Justice League movie coming up, as we said. We do. Green Lantern, so Green Lantern and Green Arrow. They're friends. Green Lantern has had an adaptation. Green yep. Arrow has not. Um, can we see maybe a crossover? Can we see a Green Arrow movie in the future? What do you think of the prospects for this? Look, there, there was a Green Arrow movie in the works for the longest time. It was called Supermax. Um, I can't remember who was attached to be in it, but it was basically the, the premise was he's Green Arrow at the start of the movie. He gets thrown in jail for a crime that he didn't commit. And uh, that never happened before. No, never. And then he has to work with all the villains and like everyone from like the Joker to Harley Quinn, you know, all that sort of stuff, uh, to get out of prison. And it's a kind of cool idea. It wouldn't have been quite the Green Arrow movie I wanted. To, if that was going to be the one shot at Green Arrow, it wouldn't have been the movie I wanted to see. So I'm glad they did a TV show. I think it's unlikely we're going to see him on the big screen anytime soon because, frankly, I don't think the DC uh, Extended Universe knows what it's doing right now. Nope. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, I think we'll be lucky to see the films that they've announced. 
uh, <laughs> at this point. Actually, um, do, do you think do you think Marvel knows what it's doing with its universe? Yes, I think they they I think they know exactly what they're doing, and because we're Disney in charge of it now, they they know exactly they what's going to make doing. money. They got yeah. demographics on that stuff. They got yeah. analytics out. They have it locked down. Oh god. Yeah. What are your metrics for this movie? They've got it planned out till twenty twenty eight. I think they said. I wonder if it can oh, last god. that long because. I know, yeah, you know, I wonder I'm, if the bubble's going. I was talking to someone about yeah, this yesterday. I'm a guy, yeah, yeah, I'm the worst person to talk about this because since like 2003, I've been like, people are going to get sick of these superhero movies, you know, mm. any time now. But I think the thing that's kept Marvel going is that they renew your interest with new hooks and new concepts. Yeah. And how? What can you do that's new after you've done Thanos? Like that's such a massive scale event. This I can't is the see weird them topping thing. that. Like this is the weird thing with him. I mean, uh, the, uh, some somebody said you know it was analogous to uh, westerns. You know that westerns were the biggest thing in in, yeah. in in the movie universe, but during the forties and fifties, and then they just went away. And you get a few of them every now and then. I think the difference is with superhero movies, they're not just. A, a homogenous genre, you know, you you can get. Westerns had a fair bit of variation in them too, though. They did, they did, but I think particularly the Marvel superhero movies, you have seen everything from flat out comedies to yeah. you know Cold War spy thrillers and so forth. So, I think there's a bit of variation. I think the bubble's got to burst really soon. Though. I do too. Yeah, so, I think you know. they've run out of ways you can veer away mm. from the formula. So the book is Moving Target, The History and Evolution of Green Arrow. Richard, where can you buy it? Where can you uh, get it? You can buy it pretty much anywhere good books are sold, but I would recommend getting on Amazon if you can get it because uh, it'll be the cheapest and quickest way to get it here in Australia. Um, otherwise, go to the official website for the publisher, which is sequart.org. That's S-E-Q-U-A-R-T.org. Fantastic. So that was Richard Gray from The Real Bits. Please do seek out the book. It is fantastic. It is a wonderful read. And it's in Richard's wonderful conversational style, so it's a very easy-flowing, fun thing to you know, go through chapter by chapter. So, yes, please do, please do seek it out. Also, thank you, Richard, for inscribing lot, yeah. my I, book, which is oh. really cute. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I wrote it to my biggest, biggest fan. fan. Absolutely. As I know you are. You're a big supporter, man. So we have, we're almost out of time. We just want to tell you about a couple of amazing things that happened this, this week. The new Palace Cinemas is open in Central Park. It looks Ooh. amazing. Please Woo. do check it out. At the Ritz, they do, are doing a Paul Thomas Anderson series of all Hard eight films. on Sunday. Yes. Oh, wow. That's very worth seeing. The Orpheum have the Australian premiere of The Disaster Artist, the film based on The Room, and the last screening of The Room before that on the first Monday of November. I've got my tickets, and I'm pretty damn excited. Terrence Malick. The British Film Festival has just started. That is playing at Palace Cinemas around the state. Um, and at Broad, Broadsheet have advertised the film cl- Darlinghurst Film Club's monthly screenings the last Thursday of every month, which is Terrence Malick's three-hour version of The New World. So which is my favourite film. Go also, and see Chris uh, Evans' favourite film tomorrow film. at QT Sydney. Also, Glenn is braving that movie, so I feel really, really sorry for him. So, Richard, thank you so much for coming on. It was great from The Real Bits, and we'll be back next week. Good night. <laughs>